welcome to another episode of Mike on MedTech, a show on the MedTech Matters podcast channel. I'm Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO. Joining me as always is Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm great, Sean. Thank you for asking. So before we get started for this episode, I just want to put in a very quick plug, uh, a shameless self-promotion. We had our MPO event last week. Uh, MPO Summit, which Mike was involved with uh, on a, in a session on human factors, those uh, we will be making available video segments from those uh, events uh, soon. Don't have the exact time frame. Of course, the production is involved and editing, and uh, but just wanted to put that out there that there will be. Uh, uh, those will be coming soon. Uh, we'll, we'll announce it in some way, probably through ads on the site, and I'll make mention of it during the podcast uh, that we do when, uh, when they are available. But just wanted to put that out there. Um, but for today, this episode, we're talking about, you know, a scenario with the FDA, and that is what do you do if you, uh, you know, have an interaction with the FDA and you feel that they are being overly burdensome in a request. Um, you feel like you're being asked unfairly in your mind to do more than what you really should be. Uh, so, Mike, let's 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 start off with a scenario. If if after you've been involved in a 510k submission or a pre-sub meeting, uh, is there some action you can take or something you can do if you feel the FDA is being overly burdensome, say, with a request, can you do something if you think the agency is asking more of you than, say, you know, your competitors? Yeah, great question, Sean. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to participate in today's podcast discussion. And also, thank you for the opportunity to participate in the recent MPO event that you just alluded to. I, I really appreciate that. So the short answer to your question is, yes, there are um, avenues, there are mechanisms to, uh, to address the FDA if you do, in fact, think that they are being overly burdensome. First of all, though, I should point out that uh, we want to find that out as early in the process as possible. In other words, ideally, we don't want to find out after we make a 510K or some other kind of submission. I've seen it happen many times, Sean, for example, where a company submits a 510K without any clinical data and FDA throws it back at them and say, well, hey, this is okay, but where's your clinical, clinical data? That's not the time to find this out. Ideally, the time to find out is earlier in the process um, during a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub. Uh, that would be much better. The other general piece of advice uh, as, I, as we um, start to peel back the, the layers of the onion of this topic, Sean, is you really want to try to understand why the FDA is asking you for whatever additional information that they're asking for that you think they are being overly burdensome about. So in that example that I just shared, if FDA thinks that you should do a clinical trial and you honestly don't think that you should do a clinical trial, then ask them, hey, what exactly is your concern here? What are we not addressing via our benchtop testing, our literature, our subject matter experts, our comparison to predicate or similar devices? What are we missing that, uh, that, that, that leads to your concern that we need to do a clinical trial? 
if, for example, FDA has a legitimate concern, for example, maybe they're aware of another of a problem with another medical device that's similar to yours and they're trying to prevent that problem from happening here, then that's fair game. Then that is exactly FDA doing their job. However, if FDA just basically says, and I'm paraphrasing, Sean, but I've heard this kind of verbiage before, well, we're the FDA, we can ask you to do whatever we want. I'm sorry, Sean, but that just doesn't cut it with me. So there needs to be a legitimate reason why FDA is asking you to, to do whatever it is they're asking you to do. And the last piece of general advice, Sean, and then I'll pause and love to hear your thoughts on this, is uh, once you have identified what they're asking for and once you do um, understand their concerns, decide for yourself as a company, as an organization, is this something worth fighting over? You know, as my wife likes to say, you have to pick your battles. Some things are worth fighting over and some things are not. So if it's the kind of thing, and I've given this advice to companies many times before, Sean, if it's the type of thing that we can um, accomplish in a relatively short period of time for, you know, a relatively small amount of money, I might say to my customer, you know what, even though I as a professional biomedical engineer doesn't, don't think that it's necessary for us to do it because we can do it, you know, relatively quickly and easily and cheaply, why don't we just do it and get it done with and save our political capital for a battle worth fighting. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, Sean, if they're asking you to do something really big, like a clinical trial, that's, you know, something that the company might want to draw their line in the sand, so to speak, and, uh, and, and, and fight over. And I have a few other examples I can share as we continue, Sean, but uh, let me pause and allow you to kind of interject with your thoughts. Well, my thoughts as you as you described this and as you discussed this, uh, you know, I'm going to pull a page out of the Mike Drew's regulatory strategy. Uh-oh, here that we go. Is, <laughs> that's right. That is be proactive in your approach and not reactive. In other words, sometimes, not, and now I'm not saying every time, certainly if, if the FDA is asking for a, you know, a clinical trial versus, or, or better yet, if they saw something in another medical device that's not public information and they're trying to avoid that problem with your device, then that, it probably wouldn't avoid it in that case. But in general, you know, go in proactively and have your argument put in there for why you chose not to do a clinical trial or why you didn't test something in a certain way or, you know, why you felt what you did was, uh, was uh, you know, enough for what the device, what's involved with the device. So my suggestion, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it would be to address this in a proactive manner and explain right up front why you didn't choose certain options versus reactive uh, and, and having to respond to uh, criticism or uh, demands from the FDA. I could not have put it better myself, Sean. Uh, this is one of those situations, I think, where the student becomes the teacher. So I'm glad that, uh, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about over the many months and years that we've been having these conversations are really starting to, to sink in uh, with you and hopefully with some in our audience as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I, you know, that's, that's certainly a, a, a credit to, 
getting this type of information from you. So hopefully it is uh, leaving an impression as well on the audience. But let's, let's uh, look at some of, the, you know, some of those options to take. And let's start with a more informal uh, approach. You know, what informal actions can you take uh, if you feel you are being unfairly, uh, you know, or, or being asked by the FDA to do something that you consider overly burdensome? Again, great question, Sean. Uh, and I always like to keep things informal uh, whenever possible. As an aside, I think there's way too much formality in this whole process of companies and FDA communicating with one another, but that's a topic of a different discussion, I suppose. So starting out with, uh, as we're calling the informal options, first and foremost, and this should be a statement of the obvious, Sean, is you want to do all that you can to, to work with the lead reviewer. Uh, as I said before, you really want to understand what their concerns are and more importantly, why they have those concerns. I don't know, Sean, if you're a fan of uh, Stephen Covey, who wrote highly, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, among other things. It's a terrific book. I highly recommend it to everybody in our audience. But one of uh, Dr. Covey's um, things that he used to say was, seek first to understand and then seek to be understood. So I apply that to the FDA. Seek first to understand what their concerns are and why they have them. And then seek to be understood, respond to them by say, hey, I recognize that's a legitimate concern. Thank you for pointing that out. Maybe I missed that. Or I recognize that as a concern, but here are all the reasons why it's not applicable here. So work with the lead reviewer as best as you can to try to understand their concerns, not just the what's, but the why's. And I'll take that a step further, Sean, and I have to be a little bit careful what I say here. Um, but many times I will pit one FDA reviewer against another to kind of fight my battle for me. It's kind of like, I know you're a parent, Sean, it's kind of like a child pitting uh, one parent against the next. So if there's somebody on the review team who I know tends to side with me, um, I will try uh, to get them to talk to their colleagues, so to speak, to say, hey guys, this is really not a big deal, you know, let's move on to the next point. I've done that actually successfully many times, Sean. So, uh, so, so when I say, you know, this is a poker game, we've talked about this before, I mean that in every sense, and I will try to pit players, in this case, pit FDA internal players against one another, so to speak. Another uh, option that we have on the informal side, maybe one step up from what I just said, is informally, uh, if you can't come to a meeting of the mind, so to speak, with your lead reviewer, informally reach out to the division director or to the branch chief. And when I say this informally, Sean, I mean um, literally informally, in other words, verbally, not in writing, absolutely not in writing. Mm -hmm. What I would do is I would send a real quick email to the division director or the branch chief or whoever it is, just asking them for a very short 10-minute phone conversation. I don't even tell them in the email what it's about, just a short conversation. And by the way, in my experience, Sean, when you ask somebody for like a 10-minute call, that's something that you can usually sneak in under the radar, so to speak. It doesn't involve, you know, a bunch of scheduling with 500 people and stuff like that. that that's what I'm trying to avoid. And then when you right. do, do get a hold of that person, express your concerns to them 
uh, and see if you can come up with a, a, an amicable arrangement. Once again, as the attorneys like to say, a meeting of the minds. In other words, if you can convince the division director or the branch chief, then maybe they can go back to the lead reviewer and say, hey, you know, based on what this wackadoodle Drews guy told me, I think they may they have a point, you know, and then you have a conversation. So those are just a couple of informal options, Sean, but those are always things that I start out with first before going on to the more formal options. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think those are some some great options to to take, but um let's you know, let's you know, a few of those are, are a little Perhaps they're a little more confrontational than than uh, a company is is comfortable with, whether it be you know with the reviewer in the room or uh, at least on the screen, you know whatever the whatever the format is, um, you know, or a direct one-on-one -on -one conversation. Some people may be a little intimidated since it is the FDA and they're you know openly questioning something. Uh, so is there a you know, somebody may choose not to do that but still want recourse. Are there then formal actions you can take that uh, perhaps don't involve the confrontation approach? Uh, you know, is there, is there something more they can do? Well, there are formal options, Sean, and I'm happy to talk about those. Uh, but just coming back to your point about, you know, being confrontational. Um, yeah, I can understand some people might see it that way. But you know what, Sean? You know, you're, uh, if you're not making waves, you're not paddling. If you get kicked in the rear, you know you're out in the front. You know, whatever metaphor you want to use, they have a lot of truth. So it really depends on um, are you going to take anything and everything that FDA says and asks you to do as gospel, in other words, coming from God that nobody can question, or are you going to say, you know what, let's try to understand, you know, why you have these concerns and work together to solve them. I, as you know, Sean, I will, you know, I have probably more respect for FDA and the job they do than everybody else, anybody else, I should say. But on the other hand, I don't worship them. I don't put them on a pedestal. I don't assume that they know more than I do. In fact, if they know right. something that I don't know, then shame on me. I'm not doing my job. You know, so mm -hmm. I think it's possible to respect somebody uh, and at the same time not um, uh, fear them or be intimidated by them. But moving on to right. the formal op option, Sean. Uh, so if in spite of the all of your efforts to address these things informally, and again, as I said, that's always you know our our first choice to address these things informally. There are some more formal options, starting with um, throwing what we call the least burdensome flag, and this is an option now. If anybody has gotten, uh, for example, a um, uh, after a five ten k submission, and AIR letter, an additional information request letter. The least burdensome flag is described, it's boilerplate verbiage, at the end of all of these AIR letters coming out of the um, FDA today. And just to paraphrase, I happen to have it in front of me, Sean, just to paraphrase just a couple of lines from the least burdensome flag explanation uh, so our audience can understand it. And I'd be happy to provide uh, references we can post with the podcast on more information on this. But basically, okay. it allows the company 
the opportunity for a quote-unquote informal review. Now, I've already told you, Sean, what I think is informal. The least burdensome flag is FDA considers it to be informal, but I think it's a more formal option. But anyway, semantics aside, the opportunity for the company uh, for an informal review um, by the division management, the goal of the least burdensome flag is to quickly address FDA requests. And again, I'm putting the word quickly in air quotes, of course, you and our audience can't see me, but keep in mind that what how you define the word quickly might be a little different than how the U.S. government defines the word quickly. But nonetheless, it says the goal of the least burdensome flag is to quickly address FDA requests that submitters do not believe are least burdensome or when submitters believe they are being held to a different standard compared to other medical device companies, like if you're doing a uh, a 510k uh, and FDA is asking you to do a clinical trial when for your predicate and similar devices they have not had to do a clinical trial. So that mm -hmm. would be a classic example where one might consider throwing the least burdensome flag just like in football. I think that's where the, the, the metaphor comes from. And just one other thing I'll, I'll share with you uh, from FDA's explanation of the least burdensome fla flag is that they list some criteria that you should meet before you, you, you throw this flag, so to speak. The first, and I agree with them 110%, is you should have tried to address your concerns uh, by discussing it uh, directly with the lead reviewer, the, lead re the uh, review team, or in some cases even the division management. Again, these are all suggestions I made just a few minutes ago, Sean. That's step right. number one. If you can't do that and you do decide to throw the flag, your flag should, should generally be limited to two topics. Um, in other words, don't throw the flag and say, hey, everything that ask, FDA is asking me to do is out of bounds here. That's not a good way to influence people and, and, <laughs> and, you know, and so on. So it should be limited to two topics. And some of the examples that FDA lists include things like biocompatibility, sterility, reprocessing, electrical safety, clinical, non-clinical performance testing, yada, yada, yada. So that's pretty typical. So if there's one or two of those areas that you think FDA uh, are being overly burdensome uh, about, you might consider throwing this least burdensome flag. And the last thing that companies should be aware of when they, choose, when they consider this uh, option, Sean, is if you're going to do it, then you need to float, throw this flag within 60 calendar days of the date that FDA has sent you the AIR letter or the deficiency letter or whatever it is. You don't have an unlimited clock here. You have to do it within 60 days, which I think is a reasonable amount of time. Uh, we don't want these things to be kind of lingering on the vine, just like a kappa, you know, on the quality side of the world. We don't want these right. things to remain open for, you know, months or, or years at a, at a time. That, that, that's not the point. But that's sort of a brief overview of the least burdensome option, Sean. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you're, you know, the, the important keys seem to be, you know, Doing it in a timely manner, again, you, you cited that, that 60 day time frame and, and only doing it for the truly, you know, for a, for a true overly burdensome 
uh, item. I mean, like you said, you don't want to throw it out there for, for everything and just generally blanket it and just say, well, maybe I'll win on some and not on others, but I'll, I'll roll the dice and see what happens. It really does seem like you want to target it to the very specific area that you're having a concern with. Absolutely correct, John. You do not want to take the shotgun approach or, uh, you know, where you're kind of, you know, a spring, you know, pellets, you know, across a wide area or throwing things at the wall to see what sticks kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely right. not. Um, and if it would help, John, before we go on and talk about some other of the more formal options, um, I could provide a couple of quick examples if you think it would help uh, the audience understand. Sure. I mean, real-world examples are always always help to clarify. So yeah. So feel, these are feel free. these are real-world examples or real-world evidence, so to speak, to use a, a regulatory <laughs> pun. And because they are real-world, because these are uh, companies and, and devices that I'm involved with, literally right now as we speak. Obviously, I have to be very careful as to what I say. But just coincidentally, this morning, Sean, I was in a um, I facil facilitated a fairly contentious uh, pre-submission meeting with the FDA, uh, and the fact that it was contentious doesn't bother me, because as I said earlier, if you're not making waves, you're not paddling. But long story mm -hmm. short, we were presenting this device uh, to, the to the FDA as a 510K, and FDA was insisting on seeing a clinical trial. They were insisting on seeing clinical data. And I, as a professional biomedical engineer, can't understand the justification for this because the mechanism of action of this product is very, very similar, admittedly not exactly the same, but very, very similar to not just our predicate, but a number of other devices that are similar to this. And we've tried uh, to in that meeting to tease out in specific detail what concerns does FDA have leading them to want to see clinical data and putting this in regulatory terms? Uh, the, the, the two most basic 510K requirements, as I think you know, Sean, new questions of safety and, eff and efficacy. So what new questions of safety and efficacy are there in our technology that we have not addressed that don't exist in the other technology? And on the risk side, what changes in risk uh, does FDA see that uh, that um, uh, that is that are that we're not taking into account in our testing and our comparison to the predicates and so on and so on? And bottom line, Sean, the FDA had really no response to that, at least no specific response. So this is something, and again, this is discussions that are going on right now. But the company is considering throwing the least burdensome flag here because unless FDA can identify specific reasons to justify doing a clinical trial, then this is the classic example of considering the least burdensome flag. Now, let me be crystal clear with you in, in, in the audience, Sean. I'm not, uh, in this particular scenario or any scenario, I'm not advocating not doing a clinical trial because it's time-consuming or expensive or anything like that. Uh, if the testing, whether it's a clinical test or a usability, I have another example of usability I can share with you in a moment, uh, if it's not justified, FDA cannot and should not be allowed to get away with saying, well, we're the FDA, we can ask you to do whatever we want. So that's hmm. example number one. Another example on the usability side, I happen to be involved with 
two different devices with two different companies, but the juxtaposition of these two is just stunning. With one company, with one device, this is a, um, it's a syringe-like device that's intended to inject a substance into the body. Well, as you can imagine, this particular device is very, very subject to how the, um, how the user uses it. Long story short, the company previous and the previous version onto the, uh, of the device, they got a successful 510K. It was cleared with zero usability testing. Boggles mm-hmm. my mind. I mean, somebody was clearly asleep at the switch. And I said to the, to the company <laughs> that, hey, uh, you guys got darn lucky here. I would not, you know, when we're going, we're now going back to the FDA with future gens of this device, I say, you know, don't assume that your luck is going to continue. That's on one side of the, uh, of the teeter-totter. On the other side of the teeter-totter, Sean, I have another company with a very, very, very simple device. It's a, um, again, have to be very nebulous in how I describe it, obviously, but it's a, um, a saliva collection device. Okay. The FDA, in my opinion, is asking this company for a tremendous amount of usability testing for this device that literally anybody that's probably more than about you know four or five years old can use properly without you know any training or reading a DFU or something like that. So on one hand, we have one device that is incredibly mm, subject to variability because of users, and yet uh, the, the device had no usability testing. And the other device that is, what, what's the ad on the, the TV, uh, that say, Sean, so simple that a caveman can do it? You know, it is literally <laughs> such a simple thing, and FDA is asking for this, this company to, to uh, you know, do a tremendous amount of usability testing. Now, in that latter case, I have encouraged the company to consider throwing the least burdensome flag, and they're considering it. However, um, I don't think they're going to because this other company is more like, hey, we don't want to rock the boat. You know, we've got, we just want to get our product onto the market, and, you know, whatever they ask us to do, we'll do. And, okay, I mean, if you want to take that approach, that's fine, as long as you understand the options and the advantages and disadvantages to each. But, again, one last right point I want to emphasize, Sean, and then I'll be happy to, to let you share your thoughts on this. Um, I don't want you or our audience to misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not trying to justify taking shortcuts. I'm not trying to suggest that we shouldn't do testing, whether it's usability testing or a clinical trial or something else, if it is in fact warranted. If I think as a professional biomedical engineer, forget about the regulatory piece of it, Sean, because to me, this is all based on the biology and the engineering. If I think that as a professional biomedical engineer that this testing is warranted, then believe me, I will be the first one to defend the FDA and say to the company, my customer, hey, you know what? FDA is right, and we need to do this. But on the other hand, if there's no justification for it, why the heck do we need to spend time and money doing something if there's no justification for it? To me, that makes no sense. Does that make sense to you, Sean, or am I just uh, maybe I just fell off the turnip truck yesterday? No, I mean, I, I, I see, I definitely see the, the valid points being made there. And I do think that the example you gave earlier where, you know, if the FDA is reviewing or has reviewed a device that is 
has you know either either they you know realized there was a problem or or there was a problem after the device perhaps went to market and they want to avoid that for future ones. So I I I like that one because that may not be something that you know the public is aware of or this company that you're you know that you would be working with would be aware of. So the FDA is basically saying, "Hey, look, there's a device similar to this. It's 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 exhibiting issues with you know, the way it's handled or, or uh, there's a safety issue or so we want a usability study for that reason and specifically, you know, when it's being used by, say, a, a patient in the home. You know, some, like a scenario like that, I think that, you know, when it may not even be something that was considered by the company. They, they say, oh, you know what, we didn't even envision that, that problem or, or that use case. But you're right, it does sound like it. Um, so, I, you know, in those instances, I think it definitely it becomes a valid thing from the FDA side. At the same time, it's, it is purely valid for a company to say, hey, you know, if there's no reason to test for, you know, A, then you shouldn't be asking me to test for A. Um, and, and, you know, here's why. Um, so, you, you know, I can... I can I can see the, the justification for both sides. Um, well, I'm glad you're able to see that from both sides, Sean. That's one of the points of having these discussions is being able to see these arguments from both sides. So there's one other option on the formal side that I would like to just mention briefly. Uh, sure. If you've tried all of the informal options and you haven't had success and you move on to the, the next option of throwing the least burdensome flag and you still don't have success. There's yet a, a, another formal option. It's what I call the nuclear option. Uh, and the reason why I call it the nuclear option is because it's a path of last resort. You can right. take your case to the ombudsman's office. The ombudsman is an office in FDA. They're not part of CDRH or any of the other centers. They report directly to the office of the commissioner. And they're kind of like a... Um, if you remember the old TV show, uh, Sean, The People's Court with Judge Wapner, I'm really dating myself here, but it's kind of like taking your case to a Judge Wapner. You present your, the company presents their case to the ombudsman. The uh, FDA reviewers take their case, uh, present their case to the ombudsman, and then the ombudsman makes their determination. Hey, I agree with the company that the FDA is being overly burdensome, or I agree with the uh, FDA, you know, whatever it is. The reason why I call it the nuclear option, Sean, and it's an option that I always point out to all of my customers, is it is a path of last resort. Why? Because simply put, it's possible to win the battle, but ultimately to lose the war. In other words, in the decades that I've been playing this game now, I've only had to use this nuclear option a few times. And in a couple of cases, the ombudsman has agreed with me, and a couple of cases, they've agreed with the FDA. So I've got roughly about a 500 batting average, I suppose. But the reason why I say it's possible to win the battle and lose the war is because it's possible that the ombudsman agrees with me and says that the reviewers are being overly burdensome. But then, you know, sooner or later, at some point in the future, whether it's for this device or a future device, I'm probably going to be working with these reviewers again. And when I walk into the room, they're going to be thinking, oh, there's that wackadoodle Drews guy. He made me look really bad last time. I'm going to make his life a living you-know-what now. 
I wish I could tell you that those things didn't happen in the real world, Sean, but I did not fall off the turnip truck yesterday. Those things do happen in the real world. So it is an option, but it is an option of last resort. Um, Use it uh, only after you've tried all of the different other options that we've talked about first. Does that make sense, Sean? Yeah, absolutely. And that actually leads into my next question, uh, you know, about about that exact uh, issue where, you know, you're dealing with the same review team later down the road. Um, you know, you explain the, the consequences of, of going that route, the nuclear option. Uh, are there consequences to, to going – uh, any of the routes that you that you stated or that you uh, reviewed, whether informal or formal, you know, are there consequences? You know, like I said earlier, you know, might you get an FDA viewer reviewer who is insulted that you questioned him even as an informal option? You know, that you question his 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 or her uh, insisting on a clinical trial or you know. Um, or perhaps went to the department head, uh, you know, or, or um, I, I don't think I have the title right, but, you know, somebody higher up, you, you, you had a discussion with them, you know, an informal 10-minute phone call. You know, are you going to face consequences for taking some of those other actions? Yeah, great question, Sean. And another way, I think, to phrase the same question, is there a downside to challenging whatever it is that FDA might be asking you to do using one of the methods that that we've discussed today? And the short answer, I would say, is yes and no. Um, It is admittedly sort of a schizophrenic response, but it's yes and no. And by the way, you mentioned, you know, the possibility of somebody, uh, you know, being insulted if you quote, challenge them. Well, nothing about this process is or should be personal. You know, I would not, although believe me, I've been very tempted, I've never go so far as to say, well, you are an idiot or something. I mean, you don't want to attack them personally. But I don't understand why somebody would be insulted if I challenge them respectfully, politely, you know, but but challenge them. And if I was, um, uh, if if I presented a very well, well thought out, very, um, you know, well supported arguments, why should they be insulted? I mean, this should be part of the job. And I would say further that if somebody is insulted like that, then they, quite frankly, they shouldn't be working in this business because that's not what this is about. So, the short answer is yes and no. There are advantages and disadvantages to challenging the FDA. Um, as I said before, you have to pick your battles. Some things are worth fighting over. Other things are not. If it's something that is not worth fighting over, then like I said earlier, you might just, you know, even though you might think it's not necessary, you might just suck it up and do it and move on to the next thing. But if you think that it is something worth fighting over, I don't know about you, Sean, but I've never sh- uh, shied away from a good fight. I don't want to go out of my way to pick a fight, but I will, you know, defend myself if somebody is picking on me, so to speak. Um, and I would also not worry too much about, uh, maybe this is what you meant earlier, Sean, when you were referring to, um, you know, insulting somebody. Don't worry so much about ruffling somebody's feathers. Right, because this is not a, a, a personal, this is a professional relationship. And after all, as I right. said before, Sean, if you're not making waves, you're not paddling. 
And then finally, and I've said this before, I think today I've said it in some of our other conversations, and I genuinely mean it, you should have a healthy respect for the FDA. I don't think there's anybody in our industry that has a greater respect for the FDA and the job that they do than I have. But on the other hand, you should not worship them. You should not put them on a pedestal. And speaking of respect, Sean, that street runs in two directions. In other words, um, you know, I have a healthy respect for the FDA, but I want them to respect me as well. And I'll give you another very, very recent example. I had a really, really recent pre-sub where one of the key people, uh, one of the key people on the FDA side of the table um, was clearly not fully engaged in the meeting. We were, you know, like we're doing now with COVID, where we're having the the meeting remotely. And by the way, Sean, I find it fascinating how it's become almost FDA policy when you have a teleconference via Zoom or Teams or WebEx. Pretty much nobody on the FDA side of the table has their video on. It boggles my mind, oh, Sean. I mean, why the heck are we having video conferences with no video. It makes absolutely no sense. I don't know about you, yeah. Sean, but when I talk to somebody, I want to be able to look at them. I want to be able to, you know, look eye to eye for many reasons, not the least of which is that so much com of communication is nonverbal. So if I can't see them, I can't see what they may be communicating non-verbally via their uh, body language and their facial expressions and their vocal variety and, and, and so on and so on. So without the video, uh, that all of that is lost. And so this particular person was having their meeting from home and apparently they were having to manage a young child during the meeting. Now, they were clearly distracted by the child. And right. don't get me wrong, as a parent and a grandparent, I can be empathetic. But I also was frustrated and believe me, after the meeting, the company was very frustrated because it was clear that... Um, that the company did not have FDA's complete attention. And right. you know, at least the companies that I work with, Sean, they spend a lot of time and money preparing for pre-submission meetings with the FDA. I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that people are, you know, paying attention. So when I say, Sean, I have a healthy respect for the FDA, I mean that, but I also expect that to, to be, you know, uh, to, 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 for that street to run in both directions. Um, again, Sean, I don't know if you or anybody else would agree. Maybe I'm overly naive, but uh, regrettably, COVID is being uh, is, is being used as an excuse to. I hate to say it, Sean, but you know, to justify some very bad behaviors. I had one other example, real quick, uh, of a pre-sub meeting where one of the people on the FDA side of the table was participating in the, in the meeting while they were in the grocery store. Because in the background, we heard cleanup on aisle 12. Now, again, if this, well, you're laughing, Sean, but I'm being 100% serious. You know, companies spend a lot of time and money preparing for these meetings. Um, and FDA has a very important job. No question about it. I will defend them, you know, more than anybody else when I think they need to be defended. But in examples like this, and admittedly, these are, you know, the exceptions rather than the rules, but I'm just being very candid, very, very honest here. Um, you know, talk is cheap. That respect has to be in both directions. Anyway, what are your thoughts, Sean? 
No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and with the, the, you know, the time and money that does go into these submissions, you know, you, you do want, you know, companies time. I mean, you know, I, I have a company meeting, you know, pre-COVID, and you'd have that, you know, one or two people who are sitting there. They walk in with their cell phones. They walk in with their laptop. It's like, you know, hey, guys. If you don't have time for the meeting, then say you don't have time, but don't walk in with your whole workstation and expect to continue working and responding to emails while we're in this meeting discussing a completely different issue. You know, give give us the time and leave your your devices behind. And you know, I, I think if we could keep cell phones out of meeting rooms. Uh, or off of Zoom, or you know, I mean, obviously, if you're using your phone for a Zoom call, that's one thing. But to to be on a Zoom call on your your laptop, and to be on your cell phone, you know, it's 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 not only disrespectful to, to the people you're meeting with, but it's it's you're you're not engaged. You know, you're not, you know, you're supposed to be in that meeting for a reason. Um, I could not agree side, more, Sean. I could yeah. not agree more, and, and I even suggested. Side, sorry, go ahead. That's right. I was just going to say on the flip side, I do understand that there are those people who do call meetings far too often and, and uh, you know, want too many people involved. And for those people, I think they need to scale back a little bit. But <laughs> for the most part, if you're going to be in a meeting, be in the meeting. Don't, you know, don't be there with your devices and, you know, your computer. I could not agree more. And uh, I've even suggested to some of my friends who are very, very high up, in FDA, because um, I'm, you know, fortunate. I've been working in this industry for a long time. I have very close personal relationships with some people at FDA, including some of the, you know, the people in the, you know, the highest ranks at FDA. Um, I've even suggested to them, somewhat tongue in cheek, but you know, maybe we need a regulatory requirement that when people show up to a meeting via via Zoom or Teams or whatever it is, they have to have their video on. I don't think that's an unrealistic expectation. But anyway, Sean, maybe right. we should wrap this up and, and um, just offer some final, final thoughts. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, please do. I mean, you've already, you've already listed off some, some, some great recommendations uh, as, a, as you were finishing up that last question. But, you know, what are your, your most important items that medical device manufacturers should keep in mind if they choose to question the, the authority? And, and I know that's not a, uh, uh, the right word. I'm, I'm being facetious. But, you know, question the FDA, whether informal or formal. Yeah, great, great question, Sean. So just to kind of wrap things up, you know, putting some, uh, some, some fancy wrapper and a big bow on top, a few things for our audience to remember. First and foremost, try to work together. Try to come up with a, a, a solution, a compromise. And by the way, Sean, um, I heard an interesting definition of a compromise recently, and that is when both sides of the table walk away a little bit unhappy. I think it's, it's sort of a, a good definition. So try to work together. First, try formally, if at all possible. Sorry, informally, if at all possible. But if that doesn't work, you know, continue to escalate, you know, as we've talked about before. Another thing to keep in mm -hmm. mind is obviously all of us in this industry should have a healthy respect 
for the FDA. It, uh, one of my friends who used to be a senior reviewer at the, end, at the agency was fond of saying, and I've quoted him on this many times before, a physician can kill patients one at a time, but an FDA reviewer can kill patients thousands at a time. And quite frankly, that's mm. something that more people in our industry really need to keep in mind. So on one hand, we should have a respect for the FDA and for the job that they do, but on the other hand, we should not worship them. We should not uh, take whatever they say as gospel. We should not be afraid to question them if we think they are legitimately being overly burdensome. We should be able to challenge them. Not many people do, but you can do it, and it's something that I do as well. Um, and you want them, you want to respect them, but you also want them to respect you. Uh, and if somebody just does everything that they're told to do without question, is that going to be, you know, is the, or is, the, is the person on the other side of the table going to respect you? Maybe, maybe not. And finally, contrary to what many people might think, FDA cannot tell you what to do. They cannot tell you to do anything. Oh, you le I'll let you in in a little secret, Sean. When FDA in a meeting or in their written feedback says, we recommend you do something or we suggest you do something, that's code speak. That's politically correct phraseology for FDA saying that we expect you're going to do this unless you come back and convince us otherwise. And so you always have the option to do that latter, to go back to the FDA, and I've done this successfully many, many times. Not 100% I'm, I'm not successful, Sean, but much more frequently I'm successful than I'm not. I'll go back to the FDA and I'll say, you know, here's what you're asking us to do and here's why it's not appropriate or maybe not even, not even possible in our particular case, and here's what we propose to do instead. Um, and as long as you present well articulated, well-thought-out arguments, arguments that hopefully are based on engineering and biology much more than the regulation, more often than not, you can be successful um, uh, in, in justifying whatever it is that you're uh, proposing. And last and certainly not least is if there's going to be problems, if there's going to be a discrepancy, if you're going to not have a meeting of the mind, so to speak, you really want to try to find out that sooner rather than later. Getting your submission uh, submitted and rejected is not the time to find these things out. You want to try to find these things out as early in the process as you can, ideally um, you know, in the form of a pre-sub or, or something else, so that uh, you can avoid you know, being one of those statistics where you know, FDA you know, throws your submission back in your face because you know, they think that you need to do X, Y, or Z, and you didn't do that. So those are just some of the thoughts and suggestions, Sean, that I would uh, suggest, you know, leaving in the minds of our audience. Um, I'm sure there's other things that you or other people can, can think of, but, um, you know, those, those are the things that come to my mind. No, I think that was a great recap. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of, lot of information shared and strategies and, and the real world examples, which, as I said, are always useful. So certainly appreciate those. Uh, unfortunately, though, that is all the time we have for this episode of Mike on MedTech. I'd like to thank, as always, for joining us, Mike Drews, uh, for all the information he shared. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. So until next time, this has been Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO, saying thanks for listening.